All right, good morning. It's good to be here, share the Word of God with you. It's truly an honor and privilege, especially today as we end our series on 1 Samuel. And so before we begin, uh, let us pray. Almighty God, in you are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Open our eyes that we may see the wonders of your word and give us grace that we may clearly understand and follow the way of your wisdom. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And so make us hunger for this heavenly food that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life, that we may feast on Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. And aid your servant now in bringing forth the word of God that he may glorify you and aid your people to hear these words of life as they are the words of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 31. We'll be finishing the book by reading the entire chapter. 1 Samuel chapter 31, verses 1 through 13. When you found it, please rise in reverence for God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchai Shua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him. And he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived with them, lived in them. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. And when, but when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the Tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We come to the end of the book of First Samuel. It is a tragic end to the life of Saul. But it's not meant to end here. First Samuel is to be taken with Second Samuel. But there is a break between the two books, and there should be little doubt then that it's so that we can pause and reflect on what happened in this first book. 
Chapters 29 and 30 are meant to be taken together to show the grace that David would receive from God. He gets tossed from the Philistine army because the other Philistine lords just don't trust him. But that saves him from having to potentially kill, battle his own countrymen, his brothers. But when David comes back, he comes back to an empty and burning town. But the Lord directs him to the looters. David ends up then coming back to his home with more bounty than he ever had before, so much that he is able to share it with his brothers and other countrymen. The contrast between David in those two chapters and with Saul here in chapter 31 couldn't be starker. Reading this chapter, I wouldn't blame the reader if he or she actually had sympathy for Saul. Perhaps it's meant to be evocative and to evoke sympathy as we witness the tragedy of Saul's end, his demise. There is, as you continue to have read, there is a progression of this tragedy that you may have noticed, a crescendo of catastrophe, and it is a finale of failure. If we were to look at our current day, some might even think that there is a progression of tragedy that we are witnessing today in 2022. I can start back from much further than this, but if we would even start from the COVID lockdowns, now we can see quantifiably that our children, because of these lockdowns, will never be the same. It's not just an increase of stress on the mental health of our children and adolescents. There is increased depression and predisposition of, quote, internet addiction, unquote, leading to increased suicide rates in nations around the world, and as high as even 49% in places like Japan. That's a 49% increase in suicide rates among children. According to the NIH, 17.6% uh, of people in their sample groups that learn through Zoom and other online, similar online platforms faced behavioral and or psychological troubles. There are multiple studies that have found a clear correlation between school closures and emotional behavioral problems such as, quote, conduct behavior, subjective anxiety, and pro-social behavior problems, unquote. Lockdowns have caused several changes to lifestyle, eating habits, physical activity, and sleep, according to the NIH. In the general population, researchers have found a 48.6 a 48 experience in weight gain across the board, Research are now dubbing it COVID-BCD. The long-term effects of prolonged lockdowns are still being tracked, but we are, we are already seeing it show up in early adulthood from the adolescents that are growing up. Approximately 25 million children worldwide, according to UNICEF and the World Health Organization, have missed their routine vaccinations, 
against potentially life-threatening illnesses due to COVID pandemic disruptions to healthcare is what they are reporting. A UNICEF press release referred to the issue as the largest sustained decline in childhood vaccinations in approximately 30 years. There is a research published by the Royal College of Surgeons in Dublin, Ireland, and this study ranked 10 parentally reported developmental milestones at 12-month assessment. That means the milestones that you would see when a kid is one year old. Among more than 300 babies born during the pandemic, the results compared historical records between 1,600 infants studied between 2008 and 2011. Results found that fewer infants born during the pandemic lockdowns had one definite and meaningful word. So they can say one word by the time they're one was 76.6% compared to 89.3 prior to the pandemic. That means if you were born in during the pandemic, about three quarters would only have one meaningful word by the time they're one, as opposed to before the pandemic, nine out of 10, almost nine out of 10 children would have one meaningful word that they can say. Fewer than uh, fewer 12-month-old children or one-year-old children in the study could also point or wave goodbye. The disparity is about 5 to 10% in all these milestones. So from COVID policies to actually COVID, the policies that have led to inflation that all of us are feeling, slow economic growth, recession, supply chain issues, to now even social effects like outright rebellion against sexual mores to show now it's exportation there is a mass exportation from this nation of lgbtq agendas across the world and to our young children including doing things like family quote family friendly unquote drag shows fast forwarding now Right now, to this date, the threat, the real threat of global nuclear war. It's pretty depressing, I know, but it is chapter 31. And I think we can understand what it's like to have a progression of tragedy. There's a progression of tragedy here that you may have noticed in this chapter, a crescendo of catastrophe, a finale of failure, like I've said. And so let's look at this progression as we study this and see what the Word of God has for us. And so I only have two points this morning, and that's number one, the darkness of tragedy, and number two, the light of grace. The darkness of tragedy, and number two, the light of grace. First, the darkness of tragedy. From verse 1, it says, Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. We come back to the story of Saul after reading about David's victory. And the narrator starts with the word now. It's a short conjunction meant to feel as if we just tune back into the Saul channel, right? This is before, apparently, picture in picture, when you can turn back, and you had to turn back to a channel. And when you turn back to this channel, here we are in the middle of the fight. And we see the first part of this progression of tragedy here. 
the men of Israel are either in retreat or they're dead on Mount Gilboa. This is bad. And now, as you've tuned back, you're just watching to see what's going to happen next. And in quick succession, we see the Philistines overtake Saul and his sons. The battle was so bad for the Israelites, it was looking like a clear massacre to the extent that the Philistines are able to chase the fleeing Israelites. The word for overtake in the Hebrew is also used to mean cling. This word is used in the book of Ruth, just a book before this one. And it's defined as cling. Ruth chapter 1, verse 14, it says, Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. That's the same word as this word, overtook or overtake. That means the Philistines tracked Saul and his sons very closely. They did not let them escape. And when they overtook them, they would kill first three of Saul's sons. And these are including Jonathan. Jonathan was a great warrior and man of God, as we have read in this book, who in the previous chapters would go against the Philistine army, sometimes on his own, and still be victorious. He would play many key roles in the fight against the Philistines. However, this time, he would be struck down and killed. And we're to take notice of this. This is not an ordinary battle against the Philistines. The tragedy is mounting. You would imagine if it was only this, it would still be an incredibly tragic situation to lose three of your sons, especially your right-hand man, throughout your kingship. But it's progressing so quickly that before you have time to notice, next, it says, the battle is heavy and the archers find Saul and he is badly wounded. The Hebrew word for wounded is only translated wounded here. It's only translated as wounded here in 1 Samuel 31.3 and 1 Chronicles 10.3 when it's describing Saul being badly wounded by the archers. This Hebrew word other uses of this verb is in relation to labor pains all throughout the Old Testament. It's the pain when you're giving birth, or it can describe someone writhing in pain. That's the word that's translated as badly wounded. He is in terrible pain. But we can't even stop here to wait and meditate, there's another one. Next, he tells his armor bearer to run him through with his sword. Saul did not want to be abused and tortured at the hands of the enemy, which we actually saw the Philistines do. If you read Judges, that's what they did with Samson, which is a book before this one. But Saul's armor bearer would not go through with it. And so Saul kills himself by plunging himself upon his sword. It was such a complete defeat 
that the cities in that vicinity, the area, just got abandoned. They just left the cities. And the Philistines are able to just move in like you were moving into an empty house. And this is how Saul and his sons died. So what are we to think? How are we to process the death of Saul? It's a terrible tragedy, yes. But if we have been following along, this isn't a surprise. In fact, this is a fulfillment of God's word. God had told Saul that his kingdom would be ripped away from him and given to David. And it is not hard to see the comparison between Saul's failure in battle and the never-failing word of God. God's will and word will surely always come to pass, and sometimes, yes, it is terrifying. But it is not completely dark. There are pockets of grace that we see, and yes, even in this tragedy of Saul's death. Firstly, earlier in the sermon series, I had mentioned that Saul must have been incredibly lonely he must have felt as though he was absolutely alone because God had abandoned him. But we see that Saul first abandoned God. By abandoning God, we see Saul fall into a deeper and deeper deterioration of mind and body. It no doubt started after the Lord rejected Saul for his blatant disobedience. In chapter 16, he would not carry out the command of God and completely annihilate the Amalekites. And we see, excuse me, in chapter 16, we see a key verse indicating the Lord's action against Saul. It says, Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And as we continue to read 1 Samuel, it was only David that was able to refresh the spirit of Saul, whenever he would go into these episodes. But if that wasn't enough to show Saul the graveness of his predicament, he would go on and make it his life's mission to kill David until we get to this chapter. Saul may have felt alone, but it was his doing. But the question I want to ask is, was Saul really alone, though? Reading this chapter closely would indicate that he wasn't. He had Jonathan with him. And there is no doubt that Jonathan was a God-fearing and faithful man. Jonathan was always by his father's side to the very end. Secondly, we see that Saul had an armor-bearer. When Saul asked his armor-bearer to kill him, he refused. But he refused because it says in verse 4, for he feared greatly. Why would he fear killing the king? And the beginning of 2 Samuel, if you just read the next chapter, it will clear up any confusion that we may have on this reasoning. The whole time, Saul's first armor-bearer we see here, who happened to be David, even though he had so many opportunities to kill Saul because Saul was out to kill David. Even though there were ample opportunities and chances to kill Saul, David did not touch Saul. He didn't touch God's anointed because 
he feared God. The armor bearer, too, then, feared God. It wasn't because he was a coward. Such a person could never become the right-hand man, an armor bearer of a king. They would be ready and willing to die on the spot for the king that they serve and to do almost any bidding that the king commands except when there is a greater authority, even greater than the king, that would make you tremble. Here we are reminded of the ultimate authority of God. It is God who sets up kings and rulers according to his will. But when we see someone bear the office that God has ordained, we may be tempted to separate the man from the office. We, in the Western world, like to compartmentalize everything now. But we're seeing in the Bible that righteous people do not do that, and they did not do that. The person who held that office, even if they are corrupt or bankrupt morally, they were given honor due to the office. Why? Why would you do that? Not because of the person who held that office, but for the one who authorizes that office. Now those that bear an office must understand that they will be judged more harshly as we see here in 1 Samuel. But James also says it in his epistle in chapter 3, verse 1, when he says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. That's a warning to those in authority. However, when addressing authority, we see a picture of who we are ultimately addressing. When we address, say, a person bearing the office of a king, it should be no wonder now that of the Ten Commandments, the first one that goes outside now progressing from God is the commandment to honor your father and your mother. These are the first people of authority over your life. It's who gave them that authority. You honor your father and mother because of God. And so, as we continue with Saul alone, no, I don't think so. I do believe even here at the very end of his life, he was surrounded by godly men. He wasn't completely without the mercies of God. Is Saul in heaven then? Is Saul in heaven? And the answer is, I don't know. Some of you asked this in your smaller groups, and I said this answer responding to the question in our podcast I don't know whether Saul was saved or not. The Bible doesn't say clearly. However, we do know what we know, and that is without repentance, meaning a turning away from sin and a turning to God, you do not have the gift of salvation because repentance is the fruit of a saved life. Is it possible that Saul is saved, though, even though we don't see any evidences here. It's possible. And I joked in the podcast that my co-host Sam would go to heaven, and if he saw Saul, he would say, wow, I can't believe you're here, to which Saul would say to Sam, wow, I can't believe you're here. It's obviously a joke, but a joke to point out this. 
Salvation belongs to the Lord. But the Lord has laid out his method of salvation for us to know. It's not a secret. It's not a mystery. The method of his salvation is in his word through his son, Jesus Christ. So yes, even Saul, to go to heaven, would have had to place his faith in Jesus Christ. And then you might ask, how can this be since Jesus wasn't even born yet? But Hebrews 11 gives us a glimpse and shows us that people of old received their commendation by faith. While they may not have actually seen the Lord Jesus, their faith dictated that they look to someone greater, a person greater than them that would provide atonement for them and fulfill the promises God had given them. It says in Hebrews 12 that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of that faith. So the only way Saul is saved is through Jesus Christ. But here in this final chapter of 1 Samuel, we see the light of Saul diminishing until it is finally put out starting from the death of those in the battle around him to his sons to eventually his own life. However, at the same time, we see evidences of grace, and the light of grace should become more evident as we continue to read. And this is my second point, the light of grace. After the battle was over, the next day the Philistines would come back to loot the corpses from the battlefield. And they find among the bodies Saul's corpse and the corpses of his three sons. And this is what they would do. They cut off Saul's head, and presumably they would send messengers with it to tell all the land throughout Philistia that they have killed Saul. They take his armor and put it in one of the temples of an idol, Ashtaroth. It was the temple of their goddess. The head of Saul, we see later on in 1 Chronicles, the head of Saul would end up in the temple of Dagon, the other Philistine god. And they would hang his body along with his son's bodies on the wall of Beth Shan. The message is clear. For us to see that what they are saying is that the gods of the Philistines have defeated Israel's god, Yahweh. And the messengers are sent to broadcast the message of their good news. And when all seems lost in the darkness of defeat, when it looks like Yahweh has been defeated, from verse 11 it says, But when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the Tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. What's the significance of Jabesh Gilead? Jabesh Gilead, if your memory is good, Jabesh Gilead is the place where Saul had his first battle. It was in Jabesh Gilead and his first decisive victory as king in chapter 11. Saul rescues the people of Jabesh Gilead from the Ammonites. That's the beginning of Saul's 
life as king. And at the end of Saul's life, from Saul's final battle and ultimate defeat as king, Jabesh Gilead comes back on the scene. These men were called the valiant, signifying that they were extraordinary men. The trek from Jabesh Gilead to Beth Shan is about 12 miles. That means they would travel all night from a round trip of 24 total miles through dangerous Philistine territories, and they paid tribute to Saul by bringing the bodies back from Beth Shan and giving them a proper burial. They take a humiliated Saul and bring honor to him. What this does is that it takes Saul's darkening days to his ultimate demise, but the book closes in memory of Saul's finest hour. And because of this, Saul remains a complex and enigmatic figure, especially to many theologians. Was he a hero? Was he a villain? Can someone be both at the same time? But I think that the life of the king, King Saul, has all these elements, these praiseworthy events, malignant events, and other events that leave us wondering. He is not a simple character to just lock away now that we're done going over 1 Samuel. Perhaps his life is there as a reminder of the fearsome wrath of God along with the awe-inspiring grace of God. But in the end, one thing is for sure. In First Chronicles, they give us this same account of Saul's death, the account of the valiant men of Jabesh Gilead, but it also ends with these two verses. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord and that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. If his life is to be a lesson to us in any way, the main one should stand out here where it says, he did not seek guidance from the Lord. He did not seek guidance from Yahweh. And the warning to us from this lesson is clear. And I think it can be put this way, as it says in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 6 through 9. And the prophet says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know, we have a tendency of trying to simplify everybody, especially those that are in power. Let's say the president or 
a governor or another world leader. We want to simplify that person and ca uh, caricature them or categorize them into like this, this good, bad, great, evil, that kind of thing. But as we read the picture of Saul, humans are not that simple, especially those that are in power. I think people who think like that may be guilty of a little arrogance, maybe a lot of arrogance. We want to simplify things so we can understand people when people are actually complex. And we have to start admitting we may not fully understand the heart of people. But we just do it because we need to make sense of things so that we can move on with our daily lives. Who wants to just sit there and wonder what someone else is thinking? You'll never get there. I have a wife, and I still can't figure out what she's thinking many times. And I live with her 24-7. We may not fully understand things is the point. We may not fully understand things, why these things are happening, why this person did this or acted in such and such a way. We don't even know why things are happening the way they are in the scenarios that we face. We don't even know how much worse things can get. However, we do know the answer. My friends, the Word gives us the answer. We may not know the why, but we know the answer. My friends, put your faith in God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what the prophet Zephaniah said. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. There's a saying that we may not be really familiar with as Americans, but there's a saying, an old saying, people who lived in monarchies and history, throughout history. And this is the saying. This is the proclamation. The king is dead. Long live the king. The king is dead. Long live the king. At first, it might sound like a contradiction or an oxymoron, but it's not. The king is dead. Long live the king is a traditional announcement that there is an ascension of a new monarch following the death of a previous one. For instance, King Charles the fourth is dead. Long live King Charles the fifth. By extension now, this idiom is used perhaps when someone is replaced or something is replaced by someone more powerful, more popular, more influential. I don't think we use it here in the States, but I suppose other nations and cultures and languages would say something similar, like let's say, and this is a trite example, but let's say you get a new phone and your phone was really trash and then you finally upgraded, someone might use this idiom, the king is dead, long live the king. And that's something that we ought to think about. Saul wasn't enough. And there is a new king that God has prepared. And the king that is perfect that is infinitely more popular, powerful, and influential, etc. The king is the son of David. The king is Jesus Christ. And it's this king that we must serve. 
You know, today we think we are king. We think we are queen. We think we are ruler over our lives. But when we truly sit down and you think about it, you think about the complexities of this life, the hardships, you will end up with the impossibility of saving yourself. You cannot save yourself and you know you need someone more powerful. And it's finally when you realize that you must say this, that the king is dead, long live the king, is when you also say what Paul wrote to the Galatians in chapter 2, verse 20. And this is what he says. In light of that idiom, the king is dead, long live the king, listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. These pockets of grace, the increasing crescendo of light, is because of his Son and our Lord Jesus Christ. And so let us serve him all the days of our life. And our mantra is, the king is dead. And long live the king. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the word that you give us as it points to something greater than ourselves, our wisdom, our strength, our intelligence falls short. We cannot live in the way and the manner we want to. But Lord God, you provide us a way to salvation. You provide us a way to you. Help, help our lives now reflect this truth that Christ lives in me. Convict our hearts and give us the strength through your Holy Spirit to live out lives that are pleasing to you until we see you face to face. Let's take this time to pray and lift up your hearts to God in prayer, asking that he continue to do a sanctifying work in your lives. Let's pray.